This is They Create Worlds, episode 175, Shady Cocktail Cabinets. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We welcome you back from our live stream where we talked about the computer price wars. We look behind us at the ruinous landscape left by Commodore as it bravely marched forward victorious only to be poked and fall over very ignobly by IBM. <laughs> but that's another story. Today we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite thing, video games and drinking. Hooray! Yeah, so we did leave you in suspense last time, because it was a long live stream and I didn't want to think about what comes next. But being as we had to put out more episodes, rather inconvenient sometimes how that works, we did finally come up with a topic. We decided that it was time to return to the very early days of the video arcade game industry and talk a little bit more about something we touched on briefly but didn't really go in depth on, which is video games, Pong clones, in the cocktail lounge market. You know what that means, Jeffrey. It means we have to take a trip to one of our favorite places. Where's that? Why, I do believe that that would be Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium. Here at Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium, we have all the cocktail pongs you need in order to survive in today's tough and rough and tumble world. Forget about 3D and virtual reality. That's too hard. I don't even understand how it works anymore. I don't even think they know how it works anymore. But cocktail cabinets, they're simple. They are just a table on the ground. It has a video game in it. You play it, preferably Pong. But you can also put a drink on top, and it's not going to destroy the video game. Heck, we'll even throw in the ability for you to spill that drink and not have it destroy the video game. Your special offer today. Just come on down to Big Jeffrey Cocktail Emporium and pay $99.95. Exactly. So we did talk a little bit about the cocktail pong market way, way back in the history of this podcast, like over 100 episodes ago, because we can now talk about things that we talked about over 100 episodes ago, which is crazy. Why are we at 175 again? <laughs> But in that episode, we were really talking about the uh, Pong clone market more broadly, and we only spent about the last 20 minutes very, very briefly uh, touching on the cocktail market. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a long time knows that there isn't a topic we can do justice in 20 minutes. That's not how we do things around here. It's got to be at least 20 hours of raw recording, <laughs> nicely cut down to a two-hour or four or six-hour multi-part episode in order to bring you the knowledge you need. <laughs> Something like that. So uh, we're going to go ahead and take a look at that market in a little more detail, go into a little bit about why that market came to be, how that market operated, and some of the major players on the manufacturing side uh, within that market. Should be a fun little episode taking us back to the dawn of the video game industry, or the video game industries, as we like to point out, since there really wasn't a unified industry back then. So we're not going to be focusing, obviously, on the PC side of it, the console side of it. We're focusing on the arcade side of it. And this is sort of a subset of the arcade side where we have 
not the full upright arcade cabinets, but specifically a sub-industry within the larger industry of cocktail cabinet. Exactly. And it wasn't just a sub-industry. It was really almost its entirely separate thing. Because as we touched upon in our Sons of Pong episode, this really was taking place outside of the traditional coin-op industry and outside of that traditional three-tiered distribution system that we like to talk about, which is you have manufacturers making games that sell them to distributors who entice operators within their region to buy them and then place them on location. It's kind of a strange little market that developed, and it had to do with both the way the coin-op industry was working at the time, the way video games were rapidly changing the way the coin-op industry worked at the time, and I think some of the external economic factors that were going on around the entire United States, uh, because this is primarily a U.S. phenomenon in this period. Obviously, they become big in Japan later, but that's not the market we're talking about. So the larger economic factors that were going on in the U.S. at this time as well. We can't talk about this without very, very briefly going over this whole Pong thing again. And, and we will keep it brief because we have other episodes that go into depth on this. But basically, you had Atari, they released Pong, and there's suddenly this new craze within the coin-operated games industry. Now, this coin-op industry had been moving in a new and interesting technological direction for a few years at this point. Video games were kind of, in a way, the capstone of a period of rapid innovation when solid-state electronics were coming in, when more complex sound devices, still often analog, but more complex than they had been in the past, were coming in, when you had new modes of games coming in, the advanced shooting games like Periscope, the advanced driving games like Speedway, other novelty products like air hockey, which was becoming big in 1973 at the same time video games were becoming big. So there was this whole new kind of paradigm in coin-operated games generally that video games were kind of part of. And at this time, video games meant Pong. They didn't mean this like exciting new thing of video games because it would be a few years before people really figured out what else you could do with video games besides Pong. You know, there were isolated attempts to do more. Atari tried things like Space Race and Gotcha. You got some early driving game stuff going on in, in 74, like Atari's Grand Track and Taito Speed Race. But it would really be a few years before the concept of a video game as an exciting coin-operated entertainment came into being. It was really in the 72, 73, into 74 period, it was the idea of Pong as an exciting new coin-operated game, not as the forerunner of a whole new category. This meant that there was a kind of divide starting between the traditional coin-operated games industry and what some of these new products could be. We've talked about this before, but one of the things that was very interesting about the video game in this context is it was very free of stigma. The coin-operated amusement industry had a lot of stigma. And again, we've talked about this before. This is nothing new, but we have to kind of build this up again so that we can explain the cocktail market in detail. It had been tied to gambling. It had been tied to organized crime. It had been tied to youthful rebellion. I mean, even outside of the big, oh my God, the mafia is coming into town and, and taking all our money, it had been tied to teenage rebellion and bad boys. I mean, there's so many movies and, uh, you know, even uh, at this time television shows like Happy Days 
that are focused on like 1950s nostalgia in this time period, things like American Graffiti, the movies like Happy Days, the television show, where it's the fawns that's playing the pinball tables or putting coins in the jukebox, or you're having fights around the jukebox. You know, this this idea of rebellious and disassociated teenagers and coin-operated games was also a thing then, just as it was throughout the video era. One quick question there. Was that more the reality, or was that more the public perception based off of media at the time? Right, exactly. It was a public perception thing. And it was also, quite frankly, class-based, because a lot of these amusements were really more in working-class establishments. They weren't in middle-class establishments. They weren't in upper-class establishments. This was mostly a working-class bar and tavern market, and then you would also have games in places where teenagers might hang out as well, like miniature golf courses, amusement places. You didn't have that many arcade arcades. Those that you did tended to be in the inner city, so again, had that kind of working-class stigma to them. They generally weren't arcades in the way that we would think of them in our childhood, for instance, in the shopping mall arcade days. I mean, you had a few larger inner city arcades, and you had a few arcades in, like, vacation spots, like along East Coast boardwalks. But a lot of them were just—they were these small game rooms in a storefront that were not attended. Because there was no attendant in these facilities, that, you know, there were just games set up. There was this idea that these are places that you disappeared into when you didn't want to be found. So they were considered places of delinquency. They were considered a place where the ne'er-do-wells hung out and smoked in the back and occasionally played a game and maybe roughed up the other kids for their lunch money to play the games, that kind of thing. It, it had that kind of stigma in the inner city arcades. And then, of course, a lot of these games were in bars, which would often have like a separate game room off to the side. And so, of course, a bar is, is not a place for children. It's an adult entertainment, and it tends to be a working-class entertainment just because it's the cost of play, right? You're talking about games that at this time you have pioneered 25-cent play, quarter play, but a lot of pinball machines are still set on dime play or two plays for a quarter, so even cheaper. It's a market that doesn't have a very good reputation for a variety of reasons. It's become a very insular market. In part as a result, it's it's not something that you break into as a new, young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed entrepreneur, because a lot of this infrastructure was built up in the 1930s, which is when pinball hit big. That was not the beginning of coin-op. It goes back to the 19th century. But it was kind of the beginning of the modern industry, because there had been a lull in the teens, it was starting to grow again in the 20s, and then pinball and the Great Depression really cemented the industry. So in the 1970s, most of the people involved in this business were still the people who were involved going back to the 30s, people that had founded distributorships in the 30s, people that had started operating in the 30s and 40s. You didn't have a lot of young blood, and what young blood there was tended to be fathers and sons. It tended to be family operations where the business was being passed down to a new generation. So this was a very insular group, and they were largely a jukebox group as well, which is the other thing that we have to remember. The industry at this time was not centered around amusements. It was centered around the jukebox companies because as games had kind of been in decline after World War II, the jobbers, the operators, the people placing these games, it tended to consolidate around the jukebox, which was the big dog in those days. It really wasn't by the 70s. It had declined. But because the industry had coalesced around the jukebox operators, 
the business was still oriented around that jukebox. And that's another big reason why it was a bar and tavern business, because it was the bars and taverns that wanted jukeboxes. So as a coin-operated operator, at the operator level now, what you were looking at was somebody that was primarily going into locations that wanted a jukebox. Again, bars and taverns, and a little more places that were a little rough around the edges. I mean, places that are meant to be noisy and, and raucous, not places where you're having polite conversation. They would put a jukebox in the location, and then the location would be like, okay, we'll take a few other things. We want something to distract the patrons and take their spare change, so we'll take a pinball machine or two. If it's in a place where pinball is banned, which was still the case in a lot of major metropolitan areas at the time, then generally it would be a shuffle alley instead of a pinball. But we'll take a pinball or two, or we'll take a shuffle alley or two. We'll definitely take a pool table. I mean, pool tables were and are a staple of bars because you like to have some competitive games because people get all drunk. It's like, I can beat you at this. Ah, no, you can't. Ah, let's prove it. You know, and that's why things like darts and pool and whatnot have always been kind of popular in bars. So you'd have the pinball, you'd have the pool, and then usually a cigarette vending machine as well. The vending machine business generally, like where you were going to get your sodas and your snacks and everything else, was a separate coin-operated industry, but the cigarette vending machine was the one exception because, of course, people like to smoke and drink, so cigarette vending machines were found in bars, just like jukeboxes and pinball machines were. So these operators were really selling in primarily jukeboxes, pinball, pool, cigarette vending machines, and the occasional game of other stripe. Maybe they'd have some other amusement location on their route, like a bowling alley or a miniature golf course, where they could sell in a couple games of another type, but that was the industry. It was bar and tavern. It was guys that had been in the industry since the 1930s and 40s. It was insular. It had a bad reputation, and it was small, especially outside of working class and inner city communities. So Pong comes along in this context and just explodes in a very interesting way because, yeah, it becomes popular in the bars. It becomes popular in the traditional market. But this isn't what we think of as coin-op. This isn't slot machines, dodgy gambling devices. You know, pinball is still often considered a dodgy gambling device, even though by this time it is, is very much a game of skill. This isn't something that the mafia has been peddling since the 30s and 40s. This is new technology. This is computers. It's not a computer that you can do anything, you know, they're state machines. It's not like it's a computer that you can actually do other things with. But to the general public, this is computers. This is the space age. This is good, clean, and very different fun to what we've seen before, and it doesn't have that same stigma attached to it. It's purely, as well, player versus player, which I think helps as well. You're not winning something. You're not winning a prize. I mean, you're winning a game against another player, and just like any competition, you know, people could presumably put bets on it. But, like, it's not built into the game itself. You're not playing to win a prize. You're not playing to win money like a slot machine. You're not even playing to win free games like pinball, because uh, we have to remember that back in the day, something that we think of uh, is the video game generation, so innocuous as an extra life in a video game, was considered a prize. You were winning something when you won an extra game in pinball, because a pinball game costs something. It costs you a dime or a quarter to play. So that was considered a prize. It was almost the same as gambling in the eyes of many people. 
this was something where it didn't have built-in prize. It didn't have all of that electromechanical stuff. It didn't have that traditional idea of what a coin-operated machine was. It felt like the future in a time that people wanted to feel the future. You know, the space race had just ended. We had just gone through a decade, the 1960s in the United States, where technology was put on a pedestal because of the whole space race. There's going to be some disillusionment with all of that as as the 70s go on, but we're still close enough to that period that people were getting excited about technology. Things like computers and rocket ships were in the headlines, and astronauts were extolled as heroes, and the scientists that were winning the space race for us and winning the technology race for us were extolled as heroes. So this felt like something coming right out of NASA, (laughs) in a way. The New York Times in 1974, when they were describing this new phenomenon of video games in both the home with the Magnavox Odyssey and in the arcade and coin-op spaces, they ran an article that the headline was, The Space Age Pinball Machine. That's how they described Pong, the New York Times, as mainstream as it gets in terms of press coverage, the space age pinball machine. There was this linkage of Pong with technology, of Pong with science, of Pong with these bright, clean rooms where chips are made and PC boards are assembled, and it's not this same ugly, dirty, smelly, cigarette-filled organized crime-dominated coin-op industry that existed in the public perception and was true to varying degrees, but not in the way of public perception. Any stereotype starts out with a germ of truth, no matter how small. There was a little bit of organized crime on the margins. There was a little bit of shady characters, but it, it wasn't what they said it was. So there was a new legitimacy to coin-op, or at least a new legitimacy to video games. It's not that suddenly the entire public was going to rush out and embrace coin-op games of all types. That would come a few years later. Pinball is about to ride the coattails of video games uh, with solid-state machines. We've talked about that before. But it's not like there was going to be this rush in this very first period to that, but there was at least a rush to embrace these video games. And there was potentially an opportunity to open new markets using these machines. You know, there were a few things going on there. The Aladdin's Castle arcade chain had already existed. It started in 1969. Jules Millman, who founded that, was already starting to push into shopping malls, even before video games happened with some of the new advanced audiovisual games, which were also able to start moving the industry towards breaking that stigma. They definitely embraced video games very heavily and pushed them as major events, something very interesting uh, with computer space, especially even before Pong. Computer space with its fiberglass cabinet and its uh, space themes and all of this really seems like it was a location leader for Aladdin's Castle. It was probably not the most popular game played in Aladdin's Castle locations, but there's a series of articles in this period in the 70s when Aladdin's Castle is opening new shopping mall arcades in new small towns. And I think we mentioned this in another episode. I know I mentioned this when I was on the Video Game History Hour, but just about every time that they were opening a new arcade and the local newspaper was covering it, the local newspaper would always point out the computer space cabinet as something that was like, whoa, this is cool. 
you know, with these kind of things, these beat writers at these small newspapers don't know anything about the coin-op industry. The reason they're writing about the computer space is this is the thing that the Aladdin's Castle operator, manager, franchisee, whatever, decided was the thing that they wanted to show off to that newspaper beat reporter. There's this use of like computer space to like legitimize. It's like, hey, we're coming into your shopping mall with coin-op games. And I know that sounds scary because you take your kids to the shopping mall. You don't want them exposed to these evils of coin-op. But look, we have space games and fiberglass cabinets. This is the future. It's not the past. That's one aspect of this. But another aspect of this was moving into higher class establishments middle-class establishments, upper-middle-class establishments, maybe even high-class establishments. We're talking about places like hotel lobbies. We're talking about, of course, the shopping mall arcades. And we are talking about cocktail lounges, which is kind of where our focus is today. I wonder if it would help if we kind of define what a cocktail lounge really is. I know a lot of us probably have an idea of what it is anecdotally. You think of people in full get-up suits in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> you have uh, some subdued light. You have that cigarette thing on that long stick thing. And you go like, yes, we will be enjoying our cocktails and video games today. <laughs> Let us enjoy that as we play the Pong. Yes, Pong. Sure. Now, you know, a 1970s cocktail lounge wasn't quite as fancy as all of that. I mean, all of society uh, throughout the 60s had kind of gotten a little more casual from the button-up suit-and-tie days of the 40s and 50s. It was a higher-class establishment. It wasn't a place where you were going to get a beer with the mates and be raucous and, you know, throw some darts, shoot some pool, you know, have a good old time like that just getting drunk. It was a place that focused more on serving cocktails, mixed drinks. Cocktails are more expensive than cheap beer. They are meant to be kind of sipped and savored, not that people don't get sloshed, obviously, and, you know, pour down, you know, 20 gin and tonics and screwdrivers or whatnot in a row. I mean, it's it's not like you can't be raucous with it, but the idea is, uh, you know, they're more expensive, they're cocktails, they're mixed drinks. You're sipping them more than you're gulping them down, and you're being social in a calmer way. They're a little more nicely decorated. You know, you're not just sitting at the bar. They tend to have booths or low tables with low chairs where you're gathering around, having polite conversation, something a little more orderly than a a working-class bar or tavern. Wouldn't they also have, like, live music often or at least at a certain schedule? Oh, sure. Exactly. Uh, you might have live music there. There could be dancing and that kind of thing, but it's it's going to tend to be, you know, very different kind of scene than what you see at a dive bar, which could also have live music, but it's probably going to be louder, rowdier rock and roll and all of that kind of stuff <laughs> going on there instead. It really wasn't a location that ever been interested in coin-operated games. And it's not just because of the stigma. I'm sure the stigma played a part, but it wasn't just because of that, because a coin-operated device like a pinball machine. It's big. It's freestanding. You're typically standing up to play it. They're loud, you know, pinball machines. You know, they have all the the bells and whistles, quite literally. You'll have people clustering around them, you know, reserving their spot on the game, that kind of thing, watching each other, waiting to play, challenging each other because pinball tables in this time period were often multiplayer. You know, you take turns and try to get the top score. 
there's a lot of things going on there that a cocktail lounge doesn't want. It's a more quiet, reserved place. They want you to sit there for a long time and continue ordering these mixed drinks. They're both more expensive, and because they're mixed, their alcohol content is often a little less, which means you can drink more before hitting your tolerance level, which means that what they're really wanting you to do is is sit there for a long time and keep ordering mixed drink after mixed drink after mixed drink. That's how they make their money. Well, a coin-operated game is going to attract the audience to the coin-operated game. You're going to have people standing around it, and yeah, they'll order a drink occasionally, and yeah, they'll put some money in the machine, but they're really concentrating on the game more than they are concentrating on drinking. They're probably not going to order as much alcohol. The other thing is, if you have a cluster of people around that machine, especially if you're placing it at the front of the establishment or something, they're going to be loud, they're going to be noisy. The game becomes the attraction rather than the bar. People that want to play the game are just going to come and play the game and not drink as much, and those that are there to just uh, quietly drink in the corner may be put off by all of this activity and be like, well, I'm going to go to the cocktail lounge down the street where they don't have this nonsense going on. There was no desire at all for these establishments to have coin-operated games traditionally. As a result, the distributors and operators had pretty much given up on them. Uh, there had been attempts in the past uh, to uh, maybe put games in some other locations, but they had generally ended in failure. So these people weren't really looking to enter that market again. I mean, they'd been there. They'd done that. They'd tried it. Like I said, they've been in the business forever. This tends to be a very conservative and closed-minded kind of business. We've been doing things a certain way for a long time. We're going to keep doing things this way. We're going to teach our sons and daughters how we do things, and then they're going to take over the business and do the exact same things. You know, this was the insular world of coin-op. Even though there was a wide appeal, potentially, for the video game that wasn't present for earlier amusements like pinball and pool, there was maybe not a great way to get into this market. However, there were other forces at play at this time in the larger economy that I think drove a new class of both manufacturer and distributor, for a lack of a better word, as we'll see later, uh, it's a little different, and operator that hadn't necessarily existed before. I don't have a great grasp necessarily. Uh, You know, I'm not an economic uh, historian of, of the United States in this period, so I don't have a very sophisticated analysis of what was going on in this period. But there are things going on that I think had to have played a role in allowing a new class of manufacturer and uh, salesman to pop up in this period. First of all, the military-industrial complex was moving through its most fallow period. You had the Vietnam War throughout the 1960s and, of course, continuing into the early 1970s. The Vietnam War and the space race together had really increased government spending and military spending on a wide variety of things, including technology, including computers. You had people in the, in the Kennedy administration that were very much believers in technology, like McNamara, the longtime defense secretary, who had really invested in computers you know, to calculate kill ratios and all of that stuff that the business-minded executives that Kennedy brought into his cabinet tried to apply to things like war. Obviously, the space race also needed a lot of sophisticated components. ICBMs, which were developed in this period, needed a lot of sophisticated components, transistors, and other electronics. With the end of the Vietnam War, and with the end of the space race, and kind of an increasing Republican presence, you know, Nixon coming in and that kind of thing, 
there was this real move to tamp down on all of this blue sky government research. And so there was a real cut down in government spending on technology projects. Uh, new laws were passed that required DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, to really focus on research that is going to lead to a practical result. Like, Government research had to be applied research, which meant that you were doing the research to reach a specific end result rather than let's throw money at this problem and see what develops out of it. So there was a real cut down in, in that spending. There was a real cut in defense spending. Uh, you know, Reagan ramps that back up when he becomes president in the 80s. But in the 70s, between the Vietnam War and Reagan coming in and kind of the renewal of Cold War tensions during this period of detente after the Vietnam War— there just was not the same amount of government spending going on. There was also a recession in this time period, which meant that even in the private sector, <laughs> obviously people were cutting back, tightening their belts. And of course, there was uh, out-of-control inflation. We're in a period right now where inflationary pressures are higher than they've been in 40 years, where inflation month-to-month -month has been 7%, 8%. We're dating this episode, obviously, but it's good context. Even what we're experiencing today is like half of the inflation that was being experienced in the 1970s. I mean, it was truly spiraling out of control. So I think in this climate, there were a lot of people involved in technology manufacturing that were really facing a really bleak picture for themselves. Because, you know, there's a whole infrastructure that supports technology. I mean, yeah, you have big technology companies like Xerox and RCA and aerospace companies like Lockheed and Hughes Aircraft and all of these kind of big companies. And you have the up-and-coming chip companies in Silicon Valley like Intel and Fairchild and all of this as well. But there's a whole infrastructure even underneath these companies that are supporting them contract manufacturers that are actually building a lot of the stuff that these companies are coming up with. I think a lot of these contract manufacturing companies found themselves in a really dark place where it's like, oh my gosh, the faucet's uh, turning off, the money's drying up, the economy's going into recession, and we're not going to have the same level of contracts from these big aerospace and technology companies that have been working with the government on this, that, and the other thing. A lot of these companies saw the emergence of this Pong thing and were like, you know what, I can do that. I mean, it's the same components that I'm using. It's PC boards, it's chips, you know, TTL hardware. Maybe the monitor interface stuff is a little weird, but, you know, I can we can figure that out. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is stuff that we can build. We've been building this kind of stuff for the government for a long time. The coin-op industry is traditionally fairly recession-proof. I mean, that doesn't mean it doesn't have its own cycles and ups and downs and this and that. But of course, when people have less money, when they're tightening their belts, they still try to have a little fun in their lives. Maybe they can't have that much. Maybe they can't go out to their favorite restaurant every week and enjoy a meal anymore. Maybe they can't go to the movies twice a week anymore. But they're still trying to have some kind of fun, and coin-operated amusement has always been cheap, available fun. It's why pinball thrived in the Depression when nobody had any money. Because for a penny or a nickel back then, you could forget your cares for a couple of minutes and not use too much of your meager earnings. 
Nowadays, it's a quarter or two for a quarter, but, uh, you know, with inflation, you know, a quarter doesn't buy you what it used to. So a quarter is, in this uh, context, a relatively cheap way to forget about your cares for a while. There's the sense that it's a kind of recession-proof business, and there's a sense that there's an entree for these high-tech people to get in, because the traditional coin-up people have no idea what to do with this video game thing. Because again, they're these old hands. I mean, they have distributors, manufacturers have engineers that are building things. Distributors have technicians, service technicians that go around and service machines. Some of the bigger operators do as well. But they're in a world of relays, switches, steppers, solenoids, wire connections. They're not in a world of transistors, diodes, capacitors, PC boards, integrated circuits. They don't know this business. They don't know how to build it, and they don't know how to service it. They're going to slowly gain that expertise, but they don't have it. They can't flood the market right away. The guys that do know what they're doing, the new up-and-comers like Atari that's pioneering this stuff, they're small bootstrapped operations, and demand has taken off way beyond what they're able to supply. You know, the big coin-op companies have the sophisticated manufacturing, but they don't have the sophisticated engineering. The small upstarts, the Ataris of the world, have the sophisticated engineering, but they don't have the sophisticated manufacturing. But you've got this other group of companies, these kind of contract manufacturer types, these guys that have maybe worked in this business before at a big company and and want to start out and try to do something on their own. You have this subset of people that maybe aren't quite as big a manufacturers as the Chicago companies, but they still kind of know what they're doing. They still kind of have a manufacturing capacity. They may not be the brilliant pioneers of this technology like the engineers at Atari, but they're still engineers that are familiar with this technology. So they're like, yeah, I can build that. So you have this new substrata of company coming up, and some of them do try their luck at the traditional upright coin-op market that's existed forever, the market that Pong is going into, the market that Allied Leisure's paddle battle is going into. We've talked about them. The market that companies like Midway and Chicago Coin and Williams are starting to turn to, pivot to, by contracting for their own Pong-type machines, uh, or in Midway's case, even licensing it from Atari. Some of these guys try to get into that market, but once the coin-op players, once the allied leisures and Midways and Chicago Coins of the world are into that space, there's not a lot of room left over for the others. You know, some like uh, Atari for originating it or Ramtech are able to sneak into that, but it fills up pretty fast because the Chicago companies have those distributor relationships. Once they're getting product into the market, the distributors would much rather buy from them. I mean, heck, distributors are still largely exclusive to some of these lines in this time period. We've talked about that before. How in the early 70s and and going way back before that, not only was this a closed market, but it was a market where operations were often done on an exclusive basis, where there are two or three distributors in a region, usually tied to the big jukebox manufacturers, because again, the whole industry became jukebox focused in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You'll only have like two or three distributors in a market, but you can't even sell to all of those distributors. You tend to only have an exclusive relationship with one distributor in the market who then has their own exclusive relationships with operators, which means that you're only selling in to a portion of the market. So it's conservative, closed, insular, and even balkanized 
by exclusive distributorships. So these new guys that maybe tried to get into the upright market or maybe didn't even try to go there but are thinking, hey, video games are kind of cool, they're kind of shut out of that market pretty quickly with a few exceptions. The other thing that serves as a shutout is because you have a three-tiered system, the distributor, the middleman, doesn't get paid until he can entice an operator to buy a product. Like, you know, if you're an operator and you buy a machine, you put that machine on location, and hopefully that very night it starts taking in quarters, and you're starting to make money. The manufacturer, machine comes off the assembly line, and then you sell it to somebody, and that person you sell it to is, you know, hopefully going to give you money for that thing, and so they make their money that way. The distributor only makes money if they can correctly perceive which products coming from the manufacturer are going to excite operators. As a result, it's a very precarious business, and it's a business where you're always like a disaster or two away from failure. If you bet on the wrong horse a couple of times in a row, you choked off your entire cash supply. I mean, everyone in the industry is a step away from failure, but at least uh, you know the other segments of the chain have a little more ability to pivot. The distributor doesn't have much room to pivot. And so in the coin-op industry in general, games were purchased on terms. And this is true of distribution across most industries. I mean, this isn't unique to coin-op. They would buy on 30-day, 60-day, maybe even in some cases 90-day terms, which meant you give us the machine, you give us an invoice, and we'll pay you in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, however many days. What this does for the distributor is it allows them to sell on their game to an operator and collect from their operator before they have to pay their manufacturer. It allows them to keep their cash flow moving. This was fine for a given value of fine if you're a big company, an established company like a Midway or Chicago Coin, because you've got a good cash flow yourself and you can wait for your distributors to pay. It's not great for a company like Atari, but Atari, because they originated this thing, they were actually able to get distributors to pay for the game up front. They were able to bootstrap themselves, which was highly, highly unusual in the coin-op industry. But again, that's not going to work for everyone that comes along. It worked for Atari because they were bringing something new and exciting. But again, once the big coin-op industry moves in, the room for that little player to do something similar to replicate what Atari was able to do is just not there. So if you're a new guy that's like, oh, this video game thing seems cool, and I think I'm not going to have much luck in the traditional tech industry right now for a variety of economic factors, I want to build some video games. Well, if you're just starting up, if you don't have much manufacturing, you're going to need money right away. I mean, Atari needed money right away because they were establishing their manufacturing line at the same time they were beginning to sell these games. So they got cash up front. Some other small guy comes along and it's like, yeah, you hear about that Atari Pong thingamajigger? Well, look at my version. It's like, okay, your version looks cool. I'll take it. Just invoice me, you know, the typical 30-day terms. And, and then you're like, no, I, I can't do that. I'm trying to finance my new operation. I need my money right now. And they're like, oh, you need money now. I think I left it out in my car. I'll be right back. I don't think he's coming back. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, of course, they're going to turn to somebody that, you know, is willing to do the normal 30-day, 60-day <laughs> kind of terms. How do you break into the market that you know is there under these circumstances? There's an untapped market for upper-class establishments like hotel lobbies, hotel bars, 
cocktail lounges, other, you know, establishments that are a little classier. You know that market's there. You know that market's not being served. You want to serve that market because you feel like your prospects in the technology field may be a little limited right now. But you can't get distributors interested in that market. And even if you can get distributors into that market, you can't afford to sell them games because you need money right now. You can't wait 30 or 60 days. How do you get in? Well, (laughs) the answer to that question is that you don't go the traditional route. You don't go through distributors. You bypass that entire thing. Now, you can't afford to just be the manufacturer, the distributor, and the operator. That's not going to work for you because operating and and manufacturing are very different things. Yeah, they did it in Japan. I mean, there's precedent for that. But, you know, if you're going to be a manufacturer and an operator, I mean, you have to have a big sales force. You have to have boots on the ground. You have to be able to maintain routes. You need to have service people and techs. It's a whole nother huge operation. If you can't even afford to get your factory operation started, you certainly can't hire all of these salespeople and hire all of these technicians and establish regional outposts all over the country. And I mean, that's a huge undertaking. You can't just do it all yourself. You still need somebody. So how do you do it? Well, the answer is you take advantage of the economic conditions once again, and you look for people that are either experienced salespeople, experienced to some degree, who have been laid off, but maybe have some money around, some higher class salespeople, some stockbrokers, people that have been really hurt by the recession, but maybe still have some savings to try to turn things around. And you look to successful professionals like doctors, lawyers, etc., who may be looking for investment opportunities because they're watching inflation just completely gobble up their money that's just sitting around in the bank. Obviously, interest rates on savings accounts back then were also much higher than interest rates on savings accounts today because when inflation is up, interest rates tend to go up and and all of that. But still, you're still watching your money lose value as it sits in the bank because of the way inflation is. So you want to invest in something that is moving money around or putting money into more long-term securities rather than just have it sit around in the bank. So you have these people, salespeople, stockbrokers, doctors, lawyers, accountants maybe, who are maybe interested in a pivot and are looking for something to get into, whatever that something may be. So you connect with them in non-traditional ways. You take out ads in the newspaper saying, incredible opportunity in video games, in Pong games, people making so much money, don't miss out. Call 1-888-275-3000 for more details. Or you host business opportunity seminars common thing. You roll into town, you book a conference room at a hotel where you're going to have a seminar announcing an exciting new business opportunity. Come to my talk, learn about my product, maybe buy a distributorship or an operatorship right there. That's what they do. It's a combination of this newspaper stuff and this business opportunity seminar stuff that becomes the big thing. You know, they're helped by this press coverage because, you know, it's like the New York Times. The New York Times is talking about this video game thing and how it's new and exciting and amazing. You know, there's press coverage being devoted to the video game. So it's entering the public consciousness in a way that a coin op has probably not entered the consciousness in a very long time. 
So you're building off of this press coverage for Pong, and you're saying there's this whole new industry. It's amazing. You know, you can look in newspapers of the time, uh, you know, newspaper archives of the time, and you see these advertisements. And, you know, an unsophisticated researcher would look at these advertisements and be like, oh, my God, there must have been a huge video game movement in 1973, 1974, because look at how there's suddenly so many ads for video games and like video games are making money. You can make money too. get in on the Pong market now. Don't miss out on this huge market. You know, an unsophisticated researcher or one that doesn't have the proper context might look back at that and say, 1974 was the year video games took off, man. Look at the newspaper ads. But it's actually not that. This is why history needs to be done with broad-based context, because if you were to take that approach to it, you're actually falling into the same trap that these poor uh, stockbrokers and doctors and lawyers were falling into back in the 70s. It was this attempt to make this business seem huge that, yes, was picking up some steam. There's no doubt Pong was popular in 73, but it was not the beginning of the video game revolution. It's just you had companies that wanted to play it that way in order to try to entice you into this market. Really, if you want an idea of how this works, just look at any late-night infomercial. It's effectively the same thing. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. It's just someone trying to build up hype. Anyone who tries to overly sell something to you online on some sort of social media platform or something. I'm sure we've seen all that fairly recently. There's quite a few instances of this where there's just a hype that's built up around something. It's created artificially, but the reality is is that Mm -hmm. there's nothing really of substance there unless people really put in a bunch of money. Exactly. It's really crazy. But, I mean, heck, we can do it too. Welcome to Big Jeffrey's Video Game Emporium, a division of They Create World. (laughs) We know that you want a business opportunity, and I can see that you are a savvy investor who wants to have his money or her money brought up to new astronomical levels. To do that, just send us, Alex and Jeffrey, all of your money, and we will invest it in quality (laughs) equipment and history in order to make sure that you have the quality and wonderful investments that you need in order to grow your money 10, 20, 30 times. Bob down the street did it, and he's already half a millionaire. Charlie, oh God, Charlie gave us $500. We managed to turn that into $2 million. It's great. It's fantastic. We know that you want to have that too. So give us a call right now at 555. This is a scam. Now, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's it's that very same kind of thing. There were a lot of problems with it. I mean, some of these companies really were on the up and up in the sense that they were really just trying to break into a market that they knew would be a great market, but they couldn't do it through the traditional means. Some of those manufacturers, when they had an opportunity to integrate into the traditional market, they took that opportunity. They weren't all fly-by-night companies, but a lot of them were. They had this reputation. The coin-op industry hated them. I mean, they did articles in the trades, and they talked about them being blue suede shoes men, which is a derogatory term for—we talked about this in our Sons of Pong episode, but it's a derogatory term for a— person that's all flash and no substance. You know, the blue suede shoe was considered something very fancy back in the day. You know, there's the song by Carl Perkins in the 1950s, 
blue suede shoes. Don't step on my blue suede shoes because the idea of that is it's a metaphor for, you know, don't treat me bad. Don't break my heart. But it's don't step on my blue suede shoes because these things are super fancy and I can't have you ruining them. The blue suede shoe salesman was kind of like what we think of maybe today as the stereotypical uh, used car dealer who is dressed in his loud suit and is gesturing wildly like Stan in the Monkey Island games and is all flash and no substance trying to sell you a piece of junk. That's kind of what it means to be a blue suede shoe salesman. So they called them blue suede shoe salesmen. They called them biz op guys because that's short for business opportunity seminars and Business Opportunity Seminars have always, they still do today, had a reputation for being a little bit dodgy, a little bit shady, and it was no different back then. So these were blue suede shoes men, they were biz op men, blue sky operators, because they're selling you on this big blue sky project that'll never amount to anything. You know, there were really derogatory terms for them. A lot of them were basically scams, because here's the thing that was different about this between them and the traditional coin-op industry. So you had the manufacturers, and the manufacturers were usually not the sellers. The manufacturers were usually partnering with a sales company or were selling into these non-traditional new distributors, these bizop guys. They're not the ones doing it. It's the salespeople doing it. In traditional coin-op, you, as a distributor, sell the game onto the operator. You may give the operator terms as well. You may not make them pay up front. And then the operator owns that game, and the operator takes it to a location, and they put it on location. And if it's not a location they own, they split the take with the location owner. The distributor's not involved in that part of the business. Some distributors also operated, but if they were selling their game along, at that point, their relationship with the game was done from a financial perspective— But in order to maintain good relations with their customers, distributors would often have service staffs. They would provide aftermarket service and support to their operators. Bigger operators would also have their own service people. But if you were a small operator with only a couple of locations, you maybe didn't have the money to hire a service tech. So in those cases, your distributor would have you covered and would provide you some aftermarket support because after all, they want to maintain your loyalty as a customer because that means you'll keep buying from them. So that's kind of the traditional market. The blue suede shoe guys, the biz op guys in general, and, and again, this isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of thing because there were a lot of these guys running around, but in general, first of all, they would sell you the game for cash up front. You were definitely not getting terms from them. You had to invest right away. Second of all, they were probably selling for more than a traditional distributor would be uh, selling a similar product. So you're probably paying more and you're paying it all up front. But then on top of that, you would often have to split the take with them over the course of the first year. The idea was we're partners in this for six months, nine months, a year, and then after that, you own it outright and you get all of these riches yourself. Of course, we know how the coin-op industry works. These doctors, lawyers, accountants, stockbrokers, they don't know how the industry works. But you and I, Jeffrey, and our sophisticated They Create Worlds listeners, we know how this industry works. You make most of your money in the beginning. Now, the churn wasn't as bad in this period as it was in, like, the golden age when, you know, video games started losing their viability after, you know, six months, four months, three months, two months. You know, you could get a few months of life, maybe even up to a year, depending on the product of life, out of a game, especially if you were a larger concern that could rotate it between locations. But still, you got most of your money in those first few months. This BizOp guy is saying all the money is yours after this introductory period, but by the time the introductory period's over where you're splitting the take, you're not making money anymore, so it's a worthless promise. So they're selling it to you for a lot, 
They may be splitting the take with you after they sell it to you. And they're purely salespeople. They have no aftermarket service or support. So you're this poor stockbroker or doctor or just average investor. They didn't have to all be stockbrokers and doctors. You're this average investor that's come in and you're like, oh, they've told me at the seminar that all I have to do is shake hands with somebody at a cocktail lounge, put this game in there and come by every week and just roll in the money and just collect it. There's nothing else I have to do. The game plays itself. Well, yes, except for when the game breaks down. You need service people. You're not able to hire a service person as the investor, and these non-traditional distributors are not maintaining their own service staffs either. Over time, some of them actually start doing so, because over time, that starts to become an inhibiting factor, I think, in getting people signed on, because you see articles where some of these companies are like, and we're opening our brand new service center next year or next month or whatever. I think this eventually had to change, but you were getting no aftermarket service or support which you would need because you have no clue how these machines work and you don't have the money to hire somebody. So a lot of it is a scam, but it was the only way into the market for these people. And it was a market that legitimately wanted games like the cocktail lounges were interested in trying this so long as it was unobtrusive and didn't interfere with their regular business. Because after all, everyone likes making a little money. And I'm sure the higher class cocktail lounges, they were feeling the effects of the recession. They were feeling the effects of inflation just as pinball permeated all sorts of businesses in the early 30s because businesses that needed to attract customers were willing to take a chance on anything that might bring just one more person into the door. I'm sure cocktail lounges, hotels, and and all these other places were truly interested in anything that might bring in one or two more people so long as it didn't scare away the traditional clientele. This was a legitimate new market that was being underserved, and it wasn't a scam in the sense that these places could and should have video games in this time period, but it was a scam in the sense of, we're going to sell these to you at an inflated price, we're going to take most of your earnings, and when the machine breaks down, you're going to be left holding the bag. And in that sense, it was very much a scam. Well, I imagine they weren't selling them a full upright cabinet. We pretty much really established the marketing side of it. How does it get into the establishment? Who's bringing it? Who's taking the risk? And obviously, at They Create Worlds and our division, Jeffrey's Big Pong Emporium, we want to make sure that you're taken care of. So we want to provide you with something that's perfect for your situation. And that obviously is something that's not upright in the corner. We want something that's going to replace that table. You know that table that's in your booth? That's old school. That sucks. It's made of wood that catches on fire. Alcohol spilling on wood, and then people with cigarettes dropping the cigarettes is going to lead to a big fire. That's dangerous for your business. (laughs) So if we provide you with this video game cabinet, which has glass, not very flammable, You can spill things on it, set it on fire, and it's okay. So, who (laughs) decided to come along and say, we're not going to have that upright thing. We're going to have it down low to the floor. We want it to be so that you can put drinks on top of it. We want to have the controlled underneath glass. We have to reach underneath in order to touch the buttons. We want this to be a completely different design where we have the screen facing up or maybe at a slight angle. I imagine the distributors at Big Jeffrey's Emporium did not design that. They went to someone else and said, I need something that I can provide the perfect business opportunity for my investors. Exactly. So that's the perfect transition, because now that we've kind of set up what this market is all about, we do want to spend the rest of the episode getting to know some of these companies that created this cocktail market and were creating the games that went into this cocktail market. 
Interestingly enough, Atari was the first one to kind of cotton onto this idea that maybe we can get into more places. That's not much of a surprise because Atari is the newcomer. They're the up and coming and, and they're the ones pushing this video game revolution. They're the ones really starting this video game revolution. So, of course, they want to get the game in as many locations as possible. And they figured out pretty quickly that they should try to do something different. They understood right away the the same thing that some of these other companies would understand just a few months later. I mean, we're talking about a fast-moving industry. They understood that if you were going to get into a higher-class establishment, it needs to blend into what's already there. And that's why you get this idea of the cocktail table. I mean, they're called cocktail tables because they're meant to go into cocktail lounges. This idea that, as you hinted at in your Big Jeffrey's Pong Emporium plug there, you want something that is going to replace the tables that are there. You know, because these cocktail lounges, they'll often have these big seating areas where you may have some chairs around the table, or you may have one of these big semicircular booths around the table, you know, something that encourages relaxing and socializing and drinking. So you tend to have these low, typically round, tables that allow everyone to gather, that encourage people to come together, be social, and of course, order booze while they're being social. So the logical thing to do is to insert a game into a place that someone is sitting around already. Why am I using vague terms like that instead of saying insert in a table? Well, it's because Atari's idea wasn't actually inserting them in a table. Atari's original idea was inserting them into an empty wine barrel. A wine barrel. Yes. So this is something you would see sometimes, probably not in the highest of class establishments. I'm not sure Atari was reaching for those lofty heights, but something you would see sometimes with a bar that was trying to feel a little more sophisticated than your typical beer bar is they might take an old wine barrel that's that's been emptied out, you know, that, of course, the wine is shipped in barrels, and then you tap those barrels, and you pour, and you serve, or you bottle it, or whatever, and then your barrels are done. Would take a, a wine barrel and, and turn it into a table. Sort of like a cocktail table that you stand up and you might see today, where, say, at a bar you have mm-hmm. a tall circular table that's more or less chest height, mm-hmm. and you stand around it, you and your few friends, three, four, maybe five people can stand around it. Instead of it being a table that's easy to kick over, you have a barrel that's a big, circular, strong wood thing. And it even has a lip on the top, so you're not going to easily knock over your drink. Yep. You may stand around it, or you may have high-top chairs, or a combination of all of the above. The first idea that Atari had was actually to put Pong games, you know, the monitor and and the circuit board and the coin control into old wine barrels. And they created a thing called Barrel Pong to try to sell into some of these establishments. I think Ted Dabney said that they got wine barrels out of Canada fairly cheaply and, you know, converted them in this way. And apparently they smelled awful, (laughs) you know, on the inside because, of course, there'd been alcohol in there for a long period of time and it just completely seeps into the wood. They apparently smelled awful on the inside. But, you know, they tried this thing and, and it didn't do very well. But that was kind of the first real attempt to be like, how can we take a video game and get it into this more sophisticated environment? Perhaps not the best of ideas, but there we have it. The first company that really got involved in this, though, was a company that went by a couple of different names in its period of time, but was founded sometime in 1973 by the name of National Entertainment Company. 
National Entertainment Company was founded by an individual named James Januzzi, who went by Dick, Dick Januzzi, though his, his name was not Richard, it was James. It was founded in San Jose, and he was able to scrape together uh, about $90,000 in funding in order to try to penetrate this market. He saw this opportunity to try to get into this part of the business where people had been shut out and got investment together to found this company. And he went straight to the source. He went to Atari. In late 1973, I don't have the exact date on that, but it was late in the year. They enter into an agreement with Atari to create cocktail tables that uh, Genuzzi's company can market. It had to have probably been around August, I and mean, we don't have the exact date, but August is the first time we see newspaper ads where Genuzzi is placing ads offering to sell people distributorships for amusement games. Maybe he hadn't hit on the cocktail thing quite yet then. Maybe that was just more broadly he was trying to get involved with that. But at least around that time somewhere, he is hitting on this cocktail table idea. It may have been the early thing was as part of a different scheme, and then he rolled that scheme into this cocktail thing when he made his deal with Atari a few months later. We don't have the exact timing on this. But either way, he contracts with Atari to enter this cocktail market. They do this for a little bit. So Atari's the pioneer here as well, though it's an outside investor that brings it in. They do this for a little bit, and then the partnership falls apart. You talk to the two sides, because people have, Januzzi's not been interviewed in a modern context, but he was interviewed in the trades back in the day. Of course, Nolan Bushnell has been interviewed many times, including by myself. You talk to the two sides, and they have very different stories about why the partnership ended. Januzzi said it was due to quality issues, that they needed to find a different supplier, because the stuff Atari was giving them just wasn't working out. Bushnell says it's because Januzzi wasn't paying them for the product. So they terminated the deal because they weren't getting their money from it. I am inclined to believe Bushnell's version in this case because, as we will see a little later on, there is going to be a very epic story involving Mr. Januzzi and a different company and payment issues. My guess is that Bushnell is, is the one telling the truth on this one and Januzzi was not paying them. Either way, they terminated the relationship. Januzzi ends up going through a different company instead, a company that has a very interesting history by the name of Meadows Games. We talked about Meadows a little bit in our Sons of Pong episode. It's one of the companies uh, we focused on there. But A, we only spent a very small amount of time on this cocktail stuff. And B, I have so much more information now, some of which was found by me and some of which was found by the ever-industrious Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. We have so much to talk about with Meadows Games. Meadows was very much one of these companies that I talked about previously in manufacturing that were like, we're a contract manufacturer for electronics, and we're worried about our core business because there was a recession coming on. Meadows Games was established as a subsidiary of a company called Meadows Manufacturing. Meadows Manufacturing was established by a guy named Dan Meadows, I think we can see where the name comes from, in 1958. It was established to contract manufacturer for this growing technology scene in the Santa Clara Valley. It's not Silicon Valley yet, not in 1958, but there is still a technology presence there. There are companies there like Ampex, which, of course, we've talked about in the context of uh, Bushnell and all of his friends coming out of Ampex, the big company in magnetic tape recording, both audio and video. 
Western Electric is there. There are some aerospace companies in the Valley. So there's some tech there even before Silicon Valley. It's a growing business in the late 50s. You know, Sputnik has launched the American governmental obsession with losing the technology race and losing the space race has started. Money is being pumped in to these technology companies in order to redress this. So these companies are expanding capacity, and they need contract manufacturing capability themselves. And so Meadows, seeing this opportunity in 1958, establishes Meadows Manufacturing to do contract manufacturing for local electronics firms. He did this for just under a decade and then decided to get out of the business. I don't know if he was older and wanted to retire or if he just had a midlife crisis and wanted to change. I I don't know why Meadows decided to get out of the business. But in 1966, he sold the firm to one of his employees, Harry Couric. So from 66 on, Couric is the one leading this business. He doesn't change the name, though. It's still named after the founder. So, you know, in the early 1970s, he saw this recession coming, and he decided that he needed to expand into another business. And he lighted upon the coin-op business because there was starting to be a growing base in what at this time is now starting to be called Silicon Valley. Companies like Nutting Associates and and Meadows and Ramtech have already started up because we're talking late 1973, early 1974 when he's deciding to do this. Nutting's there, Atari's there, even Ramtech is there by now. He knows that it had been recession-proof during the Great Depression. He vaguely is aware of that history. And so he's like, I'm going to establish a subsidiary to get into this business because I'm afraid my contract manufacturing is going to dry up. Now, he doesn't end the Meadows manufacturing contract business. I mean, he's still doing that. But in January 1974, he establishes Meadows Games as a subsidiary of Meadows Manufacturing to enter this market. He gets together somewhere. There's a tech, Bob Davis, that he brings in. He doesn't really have a full-time engineer, but he brings together, he brings in a tech. He's able to kind of knock together a Pong-style circuit board. I mean, they're not hard to rip off. It's happening all over the country, even as we speak in January 1974. But he doesn't have a lot of expertise in this area, and I get the sense that he also needed a little more manufacturing capacity, because after all, he's not giving up the contract manufacturing. And he needs some expertise, somebody that's already involved in this video game thing a little bit to help out. So he ends up partnering with a very interesting character by the name of Marty Carlucci. Now, this is new. This is someone that we discovered. And when I say we, I totally mean Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, discovered after we did our Sons of Pong episode. So we didn't talk about the Carlucci connection with Meadows Games. Carlucci had a small PC manufacturing, small PC board business at 2930 Scott Boulevard, which happened to be right by, literally right by, where Atari was getting its start. So when Atari decided that they were going to manufacture their own games instead of licensing them to one of the big Chicago companies, now Atari didn't have any capability to do that themselves. They needed to find a cabinet maker. They needed to find a PC board maker. They needed to bring all of this stuff together because they didn't have it. It just so happened that Carlucci was operating like right across the street, essentially, and had a PC board company. So Atari actually contracted with Carlucci to do their early Pong boards. Carlucci had a front row seat as this business took off. And in fact, he started playing all sides a little bit because as he was manufacturing product for Atari, he also started shipping Pong boards to Taito. He's the guy that got Taito into the video game industry, the Japanese company. 
Because Taito, their early video games, they did not make their boards in-house. They imported their early boards. They imported Pong boards, and they imported Space Race boards, and released them under their different names, Elepong for Pong and uh, Astro Chase for Space Race. It turns out the missing link in this we discovered is Carlucci was the guy giving them the boards. That's the guy they imported from. I know they imported the Pongs from them, because Ethan interviewed a a gentleman by the name of John Wilbur, who's about to enter our story, who told him that they were doing the Pong boards. I presume that's where he got his Space Race boards from, too. I I don't know that Carlucci was manufacturing Space Race PC boards for Atari, but it would make sense. It's hard to believe that Taito, this distant Japanese company, was getting their Pong boards from one source and their Space Race boards from another source. So I assume Carlucci did both, but we only know the Pong for sure want to be clear on what we know and what we're speculating. Carlucci is playing the angles, and he's interested in supplying other people because this is a big moneymaker. Meadows Games ends up approaching him to do their PC boards. They're like, we've got this game, we've got this Pong thing that we're doing, and we would like to have you do our PC boards. Carlucci's like, great, you know, this is more money for me. And Carlucci ends up bringing in uh, his brother-in-law, who's just finishing up a degree in some of this electrical engineering stuff, named John Wilbur who, even though he's just finishing up his degree, he's, he's had experience going back like half a decade in integrated circuits, mostly on the testing side. So Carlucci brings in Wilbur because he needs somebody with some expertise as his operation is growing with knowing how this stuff works, being able to test it, being able to figure out why things are not working, etc. So he brings in his brother-in-law, John Wilbur. You know, Wilbur is looking at these Pong boards and looking at this Pong game, and he's not happy with some of the quirks of it. Because, you know, Pong is played with dials, what are called, you know, the technical term potentiometers, where you're spinning these things up and down, you know, spinning these things left and right to make your paddle go up and down. The more you spin it, higher up or down it goes. It's an analog control system. The way the Atari Pong game worked was a little weird on the score, because according to what Wilbur said, this wasn't these potentiometers, the movement of these potentiometers wasn't controlled by a single chip. It was controlled by a a couple of chips. So you had to rotate a couple of times to get your paddle all the way up and down because of the way the inputs were interfacing with the board. So he considered it kind of clunky, the way Pong worked. He knew about remote control vehicles, like remote control RC cars, RC airplanes, which were becoming popular in this time. And, you know, these things had little joysticks instead, you know, these little thumbsticks, not full-size joysticks like you use on your computer, but, you know, little thumbsticks that you would use in a, on a control console. I don't know how much the kids play with remote control cars these days, but, but certainly Jeffrey and I are familiar with this kind of technology. So he was like, you know, this would be a lot nicer if it were controlled with these little, like, RC uh, car-style joysticks instead of these dials, these potentiometers. So he actually created this upgrade kit where you would control a Pong game with these tiny thumbsticks. So they're not the kind of uh, joysticks you think of on, like, a Pac-Man cabinet, you know, with these ball joysticks that are, you know, a little short and squat, but are still something that's meant to kind of grasp with your whole hand. They're smaller joysticks that instead of grasping with your whole hand, you know, they're not quite thumbsticks, I think a little bigger than that, but you would maybe grasp with like your thumb and your forefinger, you know, these these tiny joysticks. But he thought that would be a better control scheme. And of course, if you're doing a joystick, which can have four directional or eight directional movement to it, depending on where you put your contacts, You can do more than move your paddle up and down like you can in Pong, which is restricted by its control scheme. You can also have it move left-right as well as up-down. 
So he's like, so if we're doing this, we can make the paddle move around the screen a little more, put a little more action in it. At some point in there, he also decides, and you know, it would be cool as a kind of handicapping thing to be able to adjust the difficulty by having multiple paddle sizes, having the ability to select at the beginning of the game whether you have a small paddle, a medium-sized paddle, a large-sized paddle, as a way of kind of being a handicapper between people. So he creates this kind of whole upgrade thing. Carlucci sees this and he's like, well, you know, we've got these guys, Meadows, that want to work with us and they have a game. You know, I think Carlucci wanting to prove himself an indispensable person, and he even ends up joining Meadows in, in some kind of capacity. I mean, he's listed as, as the vice president there by the middle of 1974 and is, is kind of being a salesperson for Couric. I think he wants to prove his value to this new company. And so he's like, why don't you convert their game to work with your new joystick system? And then we'll sell that to them and we'll get a ro- you can get a royalty on it. And we've improved their game and kind of strengthened this relationship. So that's what Wilbur does. So this game that Meadows has already been working on, he applies this joystick thing, he applies some more interesting ball arc stuff, and he applies this variable paddle thing. They end up with something a little new and a little different called Flim Flam, which is still a Pong clone, but it's the joystick control instead of the dial control, which means that you can move the paddle all around your half of the screen, not just up and down. It's got the varying paddle sizes, and they add two buttons. I don't know whose idea the buttons were. They may not have been Wilbur's idea. That may have come from the Meadows side. But with the more interesting ball physics that they're doing as well, they come up with these two buttons, the flim and the flam button. And you can press one of these buttons to suddenly alter the trajectory of the ball in order to make its movement much more unpredictable and add a little bit more surprise to the game. So that's where they take the name from, flim flam, those two buttons that allow you to change the way the ball's working. They put that thing together, the first shipments, uh, they do it both in upright and in a cocktail form, but they're looking at this cocktail form market as well as the upright. It's definitely in the cocktail where it makes its biggest mark. Their first unit ship in March 1974, which is the same month that uh, National Entertainment Company by Genuzzi is formally incorporated and starts selling these Pong machines. Genuzzi is partnering with Atari at first you know, after forming his his company in 74. But that deal falls through, and so he's looking for somebody else, and so he partners with Meadows Games instead. And in November 1974, they enter into an agreement where National Entertainment will become the distributor of the Meadows Games product, which at this time primarily means flim-flam. This is the game more than any other that really ignites the market. There are other companies that get involved in this business at the same time, roughly in the same time period. We do think Genuzzi was first. I mean, we don't have exact dates for all of this stuff, but we do think that Genuzzi was the first one to get involved. But there are other companies that very quickly come in. There's a a table soccer company down in Arizona called Merco that was one of the early pioneers in the United States of foosball tables. They didn't invent foosball tables, but the principals had been stationed in Germany in the military, and they had seen these foosball tables that were really popular with bargoers and uh, arcade patrons in places like Germany, France, and Italy, and started a business down in Arizona where they were importing these tables and were one of the big people bringing table soccer to the United States for the first time. They decided to enter this business. They found a subsidiary of Merco in order to start creating these cocktail games. There was another company called Digital Games 
that got involved that, again, these were some people that really saw that, hey, this video game thing seems like a big deal. We'd like to get in on this. But they didn't have the money. They couldn't go through traditional distribution because they didn't have the capital. They couldn't afford to wait for a distributor to pay them 30, 60 days later. So they got into this cocktail market. Even traditional guys, Nutting Associates, got in because Nutting Associates got really hammered in the transition to Pong. You know, they had had their hit with Computer Quiz. They had pioneered video games with Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney's Computer Space. And then they got lost in the Pong market and entered bankruptcy. And so as this cocktail table market took off, Nutting Associates even got into the cocktail market and were able to pull themselves out of bankruptcy through it. The recovery didn't last. The company still ended up failing. He ended up selling out to a a guy named Cy Red who was making uh, gray market poker machines. They briefly pulled themselves out of bankruptcy by entering this cocktail market. And then there was a company in Illinois by the name of Fascination Limited that was founded initially as a national computer in August 1973 by two guys named Bob Runt and Bob Anderson. They were probably not involved in coin-op games at that time, but then they also pivoted into this new market that was growing up under the name Fascination Limited. And they were the guys that were really pushing the biz op kind of side of the business. They were one of the first ones to do it that way. Januzzi was doing it through kind of the blue suede shoe salesman approach, sending out salesmen, putting ads in newspapers, and then having their salesmen talk up on the phone what an amazing opportunity they had or sending their salesmen out into the world to drum up business. They were kind of the pioneers of that side of it. Fascination Limited were kind of pioneers of the biz op seminar side of it. They didn't do newspaper ads. They did these hotel seminars to get upper middle class moneyed individuals to buy into the product. These were some of the big companies in the field. In 1976, there was a market study done of the video game industry generally, but one of the things they tracked specifically was the table games, the cocktail games. At that period of time, Merco Games, that subsidiary of the table soccer company, was estimated to be the number one company. Meadows was estimated to be the number two company. Meadows was probably number one in 1974, 1975. They just faded a bit by the time this market study was done in 1976. A company called Electromotion was number three. And then some of these other companies like Fascination and Digital Games and Nutting still Atari even, were hanging in, as well as PMC Electronics, which was another one of these companies. They released a machine called Aztec. They were another one of these contract manufacturers, except they were on the East Coast. They were a Philadelphia-area contract manufacturer, and like Meadows Games, they saw this new market and were like, let's get into that because we have the skill to do these electronics and we're afraid that our core business isn't going to last. So they started in the upright business. You know, They followed in Atari's footsteps like Ramtech did and started making upright Pong games. But then when the cocktail market developed, they pivoted into that market. Merco was the same way. They were already in the coin-op business making table soccer games. They tried to get into the traditional market, found that they were shut out because they were too late. There wasn't room for an outsider. And so Merco also pivoted from uprights into cocktails. PMC Electronics pivoted from uprights into cocktails. Nutting Associates, when they got frozen out, pivoted from uprights into cocktails. And then you had these other companies like Meadows, National Entertainment, and Fascination, which were immediately getting into cocktails as their way of doing things. Flim Flam was definitely the biggest game in this market. It ends up doing 12,000 units over the course of just over a year of production. I can certainly see why it has a two-player mode and a four-player mode. 
You have a nice hexagonal form factor to it. It has the wood veneer that was very popular in the 70s, mm-hmm. and it has very clean, nice-looking buttons and the joystick. It's easy to play, and it has very clear, simple instructions. Put in one quarter for two players, two quarters for four players, select your difficulty, go. Mm-hmm. And it has some of those interesting features like the variable paddle sizes and that flim and flam button that makes the game a little less predictable. For a period of time, you had Genusi's company, you know, getting them an even greater sales presence, putting these ads in all these newspapers and giving them a larger footprint. They did rather well, though there's also a story about them that we now definitely want to tell that is very interesting. It was first discovered by Ethan. I also discovered it independently, but after him, he was the first one that discovered in the newspapers. Because this was a kind of unscrupulous business. This was definitely more unscrupulous than the the traditional distribution. You know, there were a lot of shady salesmen involved in this kind of thing. And Januzzi and his salesman, William Wasson, W-A-S-S-O-N, were not necessarily on the up and up. We talked about how there was a lot of weirdness with money going back and forth. And, you know, I talked about how Bushnell is probably right that uh, Januzzi wasn't paying everything that Atari was owed when they were partnering in this cocktail market. Yeah, that's probably true because it turns out Januzzi and National were also not paying Meadows everything they were owed as part of their flimflam deal. Over time, there was a rather sizable debt that was accumulated by National that was owed to Meadows for the games that Meadows was supplying and that National was the exclusive distributor for from November 1974 through October 1975, kind of the height of this cocktail boom period. It turns out that at the end of this period, Meadows was still owed $220,000 that they never received from National. Lawsuits were filed, as is often the case when this kind of thing happens. A settlement was finally reached where Meadows was paid $79,220 as a down payment on the debt with an agreement that National would continue to pay $5,000 a week until the entire debt was paid off. In April 1976, presumably due to continuing problems as this cocktail boom was kind of fading, National halted its payments. They claim that they halted the payments because they were trying to reach Meadows and they were trying to reach Couric and figure out what exactly they still owed and that Meadows was giving them the runaround. And so since they didn't know what they still owed, they just stopped paying. Januzzi always spends it. I'm pretty suspicious of that. I mean, that's their story, but it seems like Januzzi is a real spinner. So <laughs> You would think that if you had a legal decision, they would be like, you owe them X amount of money. Yeah. Okay. And you do a good faith investment of this, and then you're doing 5000 a week. That should be very basic, simple math. Right. According to Januzzi, what happened next is that Couric decided to go to the local mafia to collect on this debt and engaged two individuals by the name of Jack and Joseph Piazza, who were tied to the local mafia. They were, they were mobsters. Engaged them as debt collectors and that they started hassling and threatening Januzzi and Wasson roughed them up a bit and threatened that if they didn't pay $150,000 that they were owed, that they would break their legs. Typical mafia loan shark behavior. 
Januzzi went and complained to law enforcement about this. He actually, in early 1978, wore a wire and met with Couric of Meadows and tried to get him to admit on tape that he had sent these gangsters to threaten him. Couric did not admit to any of this on tape, claimed that he had no idea what Januzzi was talking about. They didn't get much corroboration on the, on the wire. Meanwhile, the Piazzas are involved in a mob hit, nothing to do with the coin-op industry, but they do a mob hit and are arrested for murder in 1978. Then, after that, some of this other stuff comes out from Januzzi, and Couric ends up getting charged along with the mobsters for extortion for this whole business of trying to collect on this debt. We talk about how there aren't usually mafia ties in the coin-op business, really, but here we've got this full-fledged mafia story. Now, at the end of the day, the trial is in 1980, a couple of years later, because this stuff moves slowly, and Couric is acquitted of the charges. Just in the interest of not accidentally slandering anybody, this is the story as reported in the press. Januzzi claimed that Couric sent mobsters after him, that these mobsters threatened to break his legs, that they assaulted Wasson and threatened him as well. He claims that they did this to collect the debt on behalf of Couric. Couric was charged with a crime, but he was acquitted. The wire conversation that Januzzi had when he wore the wire, during that conversation that was tape-recorded, Couric categorically denied sending mobsters after Januzzi. Who knows? That's all we can do is tell that story. I don't even want to begin to speculate, because at, at that point, you're getting into potentially slandering somebody and accusing them of some very dark things that, that you shouldn't. But that's the press record on what happened here. It's a great illustrative story about how there was a lot of shadiness going on in this kind of cocktail market, that not every businessman that was there was above board. And Carlucci, who we talked about, was a bit of a crook, too, because, you know, he told Wilbur, you know, his brother-in-law Wilbur, that he'd get a royalty on some of these changes that he was making to Meadows' stuff. And Wilbur never got that royalty that was reneged on. You know, there was, there was a lot of shadiness going on, because these were people operating out of the mainstream. That led to some strange situations. So, you know, how does this play out in the end? Well, the market heats up for a bit. You know, in 1974, there was a real collapse, as we've talked about before, in demand for coin-operated games from traditional distributors and traditional venues. There had been somewhere between 50 and 70,000, the higher end of the estimate is 70,000 games that were put on the market in 73, Pong, Pong clones, etc., ball and paddle stuff. And then that market collapsed down to like 30,000 in 1974 because there was just, you know, quite frankly, market saturation. Everyone that had something wanted something. And so the market was cut basically in half. But that cocktail market started up in 74, probably late in the year, you know, with the stuff Meadows is doing and the stuff National's doing, the stuff that uh, Fascination Limited's doing, some of these other companies. There were another uh, estimated about 10,000 units sold into those markets in 1974, in addition to the 30,000 sold into traditional venues. And in 1975, that more than doubled to over 26,000 units as this picked up speed. But those markets kind of saturated too. It was only ball and paddle. None of these companies were moving beyond that. A lot of these companies weren't necessarily very sophisticated game creators. They were just kind of knocking off what had come from other companies, and they were pushing themselves in because they had some technical expertise and they had some manufacturing capacity, but it wasn't necessarily their mainline business. 
this market kind of saturated and, and fell apart pretty quickly as well. Now, cocktail tables remain as a business into the early 1980s as kind of the secondary market, but it's no longer seen as the future of the industry or as a place where there's really going to be long-term success. So most of these companies try to pivot into other areas, and they either pivot successfully or they go out of business. Nutting Associates, like I said, they're temporarily pulled out of bankruptcy by pivoting to cocktails, but then they end up selling out because they're not doing well. National is actually wound up, and Januzzi starts another company, Innovated Coin Corporation. They never become a major player, but they go into traditional uprights. By 1976, the video game industry is kind of expanding a little bit in traditional venues. We're starting to see more driving games and target shooting games that are replacing the electromechanical novelty games, even though the market is up and down, up and down, kind of what Frank Fogelman of Gremlin called a yo-yo industry. You're starting to get the answer to what can you do with this beyond Pong, and so the traditional distributors are taking more. So Innovative Coin kind of pivots in that direction. Merco tries to pivot more in that direction, though they don't last long. Meadows successfully pivots into traditional upright games and kind of abandons that cocktail business. Some companies try to get into the new home game business as well, because you've got another situation here where there's a gap between what toy companies and consumer electronics companies can do with this stuff, and they see a way to wheedle themselves in. And so like Fascination, another one of these companies that we didn't discuss called Major Manufacturers, both try to introduce home products. They try to get home products on the market, though they fail. They run afoul of the FCC and the stringent testing requirements. And it turns out that you can't pivot from cocktail games into home games because the competition catches up quickly and there's things like FCC requirements that they never had to deal with before. One company tries to have it both ways. One company that we didn't talk about because uh, it's really worthy of its own episode somewhere down the line because they were a big deal is the company Cinematronics. I don't know exactly how it formed. It's a bit of a mystery. My speculation, I want to state that this is 100% speculation. It was founded by two football players for the San Diego Chargers, Gary Garrison and Dennis Partee. They were nearing the end of their careers, and they were these, you know, professionals. They'd made some money in professional football, but they were going to need to have careers after football, lives after football. They were nearing retirement. So they fit into the same category of investor as some of these doctor and lawyer types did. My guess is that they probably saw some of these advertisements for, you know, make lots of money with Pong games, or they went to a business opportunity seminar where make lots of money with Pong games and decided to be more ambitious. And instead of becoming an operator on the back of this stuff, they decided that they would pool their money to actually enter the manufacturing business. They probably had a sense that this was where the real money was rather than in this shady operation stuff. And so in 1975, they established Cinematronics to enter this cocktail table market. I'm not going to go into their full history now. There's, there's way more to tell because they deserve their own episode. But basically, they tried this cocktail table thing. That didn't work out very well. Then they tried to pivot into the home market because they saw that as another area they could pivot. That didn't work well. And then they finally had success, though it was a long time coming, in the traditional upright coin-op cabinet market. So that's an example of a company that tried to have it both ways. Most of these companies died. Most of these companies entered bankruptcy. Some of them never pivoted out of cocktail, like Nutting and PMC Electronics, and so they just petered out. Others tried to pivot out of cocktail and failed, like Fascination or Major Manufacturers or Innovative Coin. And then just a couple of them 
like Meadows Games and Cinematronics, were actually able to integrate themselves into the larger traditional coin-op space and continue in that business for at least a few years after the cocktail boom was over. You know, it was an interesting experiment. It was one of the first attempts to expand what a coin-op game could be and where it could be operated. It had a little success. It ended up not being the future. It ended up kind of existing at a low level for a few more years. But, you know, expanding coin-op and expanding video games really took the shopping mall arcade and, and Space Invaders and all of this stuff that came just a couple of years later to really get going. But it's an interesting chapter in early coin-op video game history that often gets kind of overlooked. But it's definitely worth examining just because of all the craziness that was going on in that space at the dawn of this new form of entertainment. And unfortunately, because Big Jeffrey Pong Emporium is going out of business now, we need to liquidate everything. So we have bargain basement prices for you, the consumer. Get it home. Replace your kitchen table with a Jeffrey's Pong kitchen table activity set so that you and little Johnny and little Susie can play Pong for players while you eat breakfast, while you eat lunch, even as you talk about dinner in school. If little Johnny is there doing homework on the table, you know whether or not he's playing a game or not because you will hear the sound. <laughs> so come down down at Big Jeffrey's going out of business sale, and we'll take sure that you have the kitchen table that you require. <laughs> yeah, when they were getting into the home, they, they were, you know, trying to sell, you know, home units took up to a television. They weren't trying to sell complete tables, but <laughs> I still I still like that image. Yes, it's 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 nice that we had a chance to uh, bring back Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium, which which is the official name. You you may have heard uh, Jeffrey uh, say it various ways as we went through this episode, but I mean that just fits right in with the shady <laughs> theme, so so we'll allow it. But yes, for one engagement only, we have brought back uh, Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium and uh, shared its many wares with you, the consumer. You have no idea how tempted I am to bring up the video editor and actually make a little commercial infomercial thing. <laughs> I'm tempted, but I don't think I had the time to do it. The thought has occurred to me, you know, it's just like, you know, that'd be funny to do. You do a quick, like, uh, one minute uh, thing. Indeed. Anyway, we're out of money, so we need to find something else to talk about so that we can earn some more. <laughs> I suppose so. Well, there are three main pillars. There are a few other businesses as well, but there are three main pillars that we continually go back to, which is, of course, the coin-operated video game industry, the console game industry, and the computer game industry. We just did our massive three-parter that touched on the computer game industry with the computer price wars. Obviously, we've just done coin-op here, so I think it's time to return to our third pillar once again and talk about one of the more interesting developers of the early 1990s, the Sega Technical Institute, or STI. As the name implies, this was, of course, a first-party developer that was at Sega, but it was an interesting experiment in the United States of trying to bring together top American development talent and top Japanese talent to create games together for this upstart uh, Sega Genesis system. It didn't quite work out the way they wanted for a variety of reasons, which uh, we'll, of course, do an episode on. They did have some notable successes, some interesting failures, and uh, a kind of wild ride over the course of a few years, and it's uh, definitely worth uh, taking a gander at in our next episode. Okay, we said it. It's a Sega episode, so I expect everyone to go crazy for that one. That they usually do. <laughs> so we will cover STI Sega next time 
on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Big Jeffrey's video game Pong Emporium is secretly working from the shadows to bring you the best in video games and cocktail cabinet. I may return again. Ha 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 ha!